Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. going to be looking back at the series that God interrupted last week, uh, YOLO, you only live once, uh, not really, you live twice, and this life is to be lived in light of that life, and so uh, we've been asking the the question over the last couple uh, weeks of what is life like after death? And today we're going to be focusing in particularly on what is life like for the believer after death. You know, it's interesting, uh, this weekend, Vicki and I got to go to two weddings. I actually got to help do uh, the wedding on Thursday night, Haley Hearns, and that was really a cool experience because George actually did it. Our son George did the wedding, but I did the uh the the first part and uh, all that stuff and that was a fun fun thing to do and then Vicky's cousin's daughter got married yesterday down in Dallas so we were there for two different weddings you know I love doing weddings I love participating in weddings but I've told you this before you know what I really love even more I love doing funerals I absolutely do love doing funerals and people will say you know are funerals hard and I'm like no they are so easy because all you got to do is talk about Jesus and the gospel because it's not about that person in the box. It's not about anything other than Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and people's hearts and minds are so open and uh, through the years I've had a chance to do a lot of funerals. But you know this spring in particular was... I don't know, it was just a little bit more, I don't know, I felt it more. Because I had the privilege, the honor of actually doing funerals for two women that I've known a long time. When Vicki's mom died in March, I had known her for 43 years. Other than my parents, I think it was the only funeral that I had done where it had been longer. And then, I don't know what it was, six, seven, eight weeks later, but it just seemed like it was the next week. I was privileged to do Shirley Court's funeral, Shirley's funeral. And, you know, Vicki and I had a chance to talk with she and Calvin just a week or two before she passed and went to heaven. And Shirley reminded me that we had known each other for 35 years. I was uh, nine years old when we met, by the way. (laughs) And Shirley was, uh, was 18. But, uh, uh, you know, between Vicki's mom, 43 years, and Shirley, 35 years, I thought a lot. I've told you this before, that when I do a funeral, particularly for a believer, I like to say, this is what they're experiencing. This is what life is like for them now. And, you know, when I got to preparing that part of the funeral for both my mother-in-law and for Shirley, you know, I sat and thought about it. I, I think about it all the time with every funeral, but, but 
with people that I had known for so long. It's like, what, what life is like? What is it really like for Shirley now? What is it really like for Babu now? That's what we called Vicky's mom. And, and that, quite frankly, is what inspired or motivated me to do these sermons that we're doing here in June. In June. What is life like for the believer? And just by way of review, you might remember the very first Sunday we did, we, we didn't ask, what is life like for the believer? We asked, what is life like for the unbeliever? And that was a sobering message on hell. And if you haven't heard that, or if you, you don't know much about hell, I'd encourage you to go to the website and listen to that one. But the next three sermons, one a couple weeks ago, today, and then again next week, is all about what is life like for the believer. You know, and I'm, I'm banking on the fact that, that most of us, if not maybe even all of us here today, have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. We know that it is not by works of righteousness that we do, but it is according to God's mercy that we are saved. What is life like for us who are believers, who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? What is life like for us when we die? That's what we're going to talk about. So if you got the bulletin, I want to encourage you to jot a couple of these things down because we're going we're to walk through a lot of different uh, topics and passages, and we'll open our Bible here in a little bit. But uh, let me just catch you up on what we talked about in the first sermon on heaven, life for us believers after death. And one of the things we found is the, the Bible... You know, it kind of has heaven through the ages. Before Jesus Christ died on the cross, we believe that, that, that evidently godly people, righteous people, people that were trusting in God for their eternal life, they went to a place that Jesus himself called Abraham's bosom. If you remember in Luke 16, Jesus told a parable of the rich man and Lazarus and Although it wasn't his purpose to say, hey, here's what the afterlife is like, in a way, he told us what the afterlife is like. With every parable Jesus told, he always used it and set it into a real-life situation. It was true to life. And so I don't know why in the world we wouldn't think that when he was telling this parable, he wasn't telling us accurately with what life is like after death for both the unbeliever and the believer. And so evidently, believers before Christ, they went to a place that Jesus is calling Abraham's bosom. You might say, well, now, why didn't they get to go straight to God? And the answer is because their sins had not been paid for yet. Their sins had been atoned, which means covered, but they had never been removed. It wasn't until the death of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, that sin had been completely removed. Sin had been completely washed away. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, my sins, everyone's sins, Jesus Christ, evidently, according to Ephesians 4, he went to Abraham's bosom where those righteous are, were Abraham. 
Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, etc. And he escorted them into what we now are going to call the present heaven. The place that we go. The place my mother-in-law went, surely went. Lots of you have your parents there. Some of you have a kid there. Some of you have siblings there. But then when you, you get to the end of the Bible, and this is what we're going to look at next week, it talks about how God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Well, just simple logic says evidently the present heaven must be replaced with that new heaven. And so evidently there is an eternal heaven. And although life in Abraham's bosom and the present heaven and in the eternal heaven is really, really great, it's actually a little bit different at each phase. And so what we're going to talk about today is particularly what life is like in that present heaven, that middle one. Next week is what life is like in the eternal heaven in the new heaven and the new earth. Now, it's interesting, you know, someone said, okay, you're going to be talking about what life is like when a believer dies. And that's true. Uh, and the way I want to tackle it is this way. I want to talk about what we are like and then what it is like, that place that we're in. What are we like What's my mother-in-law like? What's Shirley like? What's Evelyn Tyler like? What's all these other folks that we've known that have trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior? What are, what are they like right now? And what's that place, that present heaven like? Now, let me just say this. It doesn't really fit into one of those two questions, but let me just say this stuff just as kind of an introduction to this whole topic. You might want to drop these down. I don't have a slide for you on this. But evidently, when a believer dies, uh, there's a passage of Scripture that indicates there is incredible rejoicing in the presence of God because of their entrance into it. I don't know whether that, that, that frustrated actor called preacher that does that Bema thing is right when he describes it as a New York City downtown ticker tape parade. Probably isn't even, you know, it's probably far better than that. But somehow, I think that when a believer dies, there's passages of Scripture that, that indicate there is incredible rejoicing in that entry it's not a solemn thing they're not walking around saying well where can i hide you know i'm kind of more on the introverted side can i hide behind this or that because you know feel it out you know kind of like when you go to a party of a whole bunch of strangers you don't really want to go in and try to take over the room unless you're just a narcissist i don't know but uh you know you, you kind of check the place out no it, none of that i mean you go in and it is incredible recelebration there's another passage, and this one is in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13, that it seems to indicate there is an incredible reunion. You go there, and, and it's not just that they're celebrating. There's people you know. 
people that you love, people that you are reconnecting. When Vicki's mom went into the Lord's presence, she connected, I think, with her husband, Vicki's dad, George. You know, she probably connected with my mom and dad. She connected with other people that she's known through the years. You know, maybe by God's grace, she got to connect even with her parents, her brothers that died all in the war. There's an incredible reunion, and all of that is something we infer from that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We are together with the Lord. So there's a celebration, there's, there's this reunion. Well, let's tackle that first question there. What, what are they like? And I just want to give you about three points on this. And for this one, I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to be looking at a, a, a passage just real briefly here. But I think this passage is describing the body that they have. See, the first thing about it is it's not just their spirit or their soul or how, whatever, their, whatever you want to call the immaterial part. It's not just that some spirit went up there and the body stayed here. They evidently still have a body or are given a body. And there's, there's a debate about this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, but many, and I am among them, Think that what Paul is here describing is what we call the intermediate body. It's not the resurrected body, okay? Because what is the resurrected body? And, and this raises more questions than I have time to answer or even have the ability to answer. The resurrected body is that body that got put in the grave. In Shirley's case, out here at Hillcrest, in my mother-in-law's case, case down there at Restland outside of da in uh, North Dallas. That, that is the, the body that God is going to resurrect just like he resurrected Jesus' body. And, and, it, and it's going to be a body that is, is, is perfect, yet it's that body. And you say, well, wow, that asks a lot of questions. Yeah, it does, more than the Bible even answers. But that's a real clear thing. And we'll talk more about that next week. That's the body we'll have in the new heaven and the new earth. But what body do they have now? Because all the passages that seem to talk about what life is like in the present heaven doesn't have us as these little floating spirits that are around as if we're some ghost. They're there in a body. We'll see that in the Revelation 6 passage that we're going to look at next. And, and, and so where, where does this body come from? Evidently, it's like God evidently supplies an intermediate body. And I think that's what Paul is referring to. Now, it's real cryptic here because he's using an analogy. He's describing our body as a tent or a house. Look what he says here. Verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if this earthly tent, talking about this thing now that I got, you know, tap your chest, that thing you got, 
if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, in other words, when it dies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, we groan and long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. I mean, you know, I'm sick of this thing. Always getting fat and always getting sore and always getting tired and always needing more sleep than I have time to give it. Not burning the fuel that I think it should be able to burn. And so it packs it on waiting for me to burn it and I still don't ever burn it. In this house, we groan, we long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We want that perfect one inasmuch as we are having to put on. Because we don't want to be naked. He's not saying going without clothes. He's not saying, I mean, God designed us as human beings to be material and immaterial, body, soul, and spirit. We're not designed, we weren't designed in creation to be just a spirit or just a body. We're designed to be both, is what he's kind of inferring there. That's how we, and, and, and the idea of just being naked, of being bodiless, the idea of being just a spirit that's floating around up there in this present heaven, none of us really are attracted to that idea, and I don't think we're attracted to that idea because that's not how God designed us to be. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us his spirit as the pledge. So therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, in this body, we're absent from the Lord. Right now, we're walking by faith, not sight. And we're of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from, the, from this body and to be at home with the Lord. Let's just stop there in the passage. We'll come back to it, so keep your Bible open there. But I think what he's describing there is that, is that we are given a body that is this intermediate body, I believe, that we have during our time in, in heaven. I mean, Moses and Elijah showed up at the transfiguration. They were in some sort of a body. They weren't just some spirit there, some voice speaking out of the nothing. When Saul went to the medium in uh, 1 Samuel 28, and God allowed Samuel to come back and actually appear to him. Samuel came back, and Saul saw him, and is like, whoa! He saw a real body and a real... Samuel there. And so just by way of, you know, getting this discussion started, that's one of the things we ought to think about. It, it, it is like a real existence in a real place as you are, so to say. Now, how old are we going to look? I don't know. You know, Am I going to look like a 64-year-old going on to 65? I don't know. I hope not. 
are you going to look like you, or are you going to look like you after those 20 pounds come off? I don't know. Are we going to talk with an accent? I don't know. But obviously, people recognize us. People know us. They're going to see us and say, that, that, that's my dad. That's my mom. That's my cousin. That's Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. You know? We're going to see each other. And we're going to know each other. Now, keep your finger here and go with me over to a passage that we briefly looked at a couple weeks ago for this next one. We'll be conscious and engaged. Do you remember that in uh, Revelation chapter 6? As John is seeing this incredible vision, he, he looks under the altar and he sees the souls of those who, are, who were martyred for the, fla- for the faith, people who died for the cause of Christ. Now, this could be just those who died during the tribulation, or it could be the Jim Elliots and the Nate Saints and the Polycarps and the other people who have died for Christ throughout all of church history. But what are they saying? Look at verse, uh, verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. Now, when he says souls... It's like, oh, okay, well, those people are disembodied spirits. Well, I don't think that's really how the word soul there is being used. I think it's just a part is being used for the whole, that, that metaphor. And I think that, that he sees these people, and it's like he recognizes, oh, that, those are the people that died for the cause of Christ. So he's able to identify them probably because they're in, in their, this intermediate body we've been talking about. Well, look at verse 10. They cry out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on earth? And that right there tells us an awful lot. They're aware. They're aware of their circumstances, and they're aware of the circumstances even here on earth. And they're concerned about it. And they're talking to God about it. And they're even asking God to do something about it. It's almost like you could say they're praying because what is praying? Praying is asking God to work. All of that's going on there. And what does God do? God says, in a minute, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. But I want you to see that they are engaged, they're conscious, they're, they're aware of what's going on. And, you know, someone said, well, how in the world could I be happy up in heaven if I'm aware of what a mess my grandkids are in, or my great-grandkids are in, or this country's in, or someone else's situation is in? And I thought this was a good comment. These guys obviously illustrate a real contentment with their situation. They just, they just wanted to know. And what God gave them was an answer that, that satisfied them. And that's because, and you ought to write this down, because this is, this is stuff for now. Happiness, contentment, is not based on ignorance. 
of just not being aware, they are aware. And happiness is not based on everything being perfect. Because from their standpoint, it wasn't perfect. People had murdered them because they were followers of Jesus, and they had yet to be avenged. That's not a perfect solution. There was still justice that needed to be meted out. So happiness, contentment, is not based on just oblivious, being oblivious to problems. It's not based on on everything being perfect. You know what happiness and contentment are based on? Perspective. Perspective. These people were reminded that God's got it. And one of the things we should be reminded regularly when we're spending time in God's Word is that God's got it. I mean, we have lots of reasons to be upset and discontent and stirred up, stressed, strained. And what does God say? I've got it. I've got it. This injustice, this thing that needs to be done but hasn't gotten done yet, doesn't even look like it's going to get done. And God says, I've got it. And that was good enough for these people in heaven. It ought to be good enough for us who are trying to live as if heaven's here on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, we talked about that of the Lord's Prayer. So you got a body, you're conscious, you're engaged. One more thing, you're rewarded. Now remember I said we're going we're gonna to go look there in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 again. If you've still got your finger there or if you've got uh, your phone there, look at 2 Corinthians 5, where that passage goes. Verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether at home in this body or absent from this body in that body that he's just been talking about, to be pleasing to him, to Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 10. This is a super, super important verse. For, because, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for the deeds done in the body, according to what he's done, whether good or bad. You know what he's saying there? He's not talking about the great white throne judgment. He's talking about another judgment, an evaluation, an opportunity for him to reward us that the Apostle Paul is calling the judgment seat of Christ or the bema of Christ. The bema was the the place of, of the platform upon which They bestowed rewards and judgment. And what he's indicating there is God has given us the desire, we who are believers, he's given us the desire to want to please Christ 
and, and we're going to stand before him. What's life like for the believer? Well, there, it's a huge celebration. It's a huge reunion. you got a body. You're conscious. You're engaged. You, you're aware. But also, somewhere in there, there's a time of rewarding, of evaluation. Uh, we won't take the time to turn to it, but go over, if you went over to 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about how, how we're supposed to build our life with gold, silver, and precious stone instead of wood, hay, and stubble because there is a time of evaluation and it'll be like fire is applied and the wood, hay, and stubble gets consumed in the fire whereas the gold, silver, and precious stone endures. Just exactly when does that happen? In some ways, it's probably happened for them. Or it's the next thing for them. But at some point, my mother-in-law, Shirley, others will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. They're outside of time and, and, and so just how the, I don't know, the guy that does that presentation talks about time is elastic and, you know, a day is as a thousand years as a thousand years is as a day. I, I think he's probably right about that. So, you know, but, but somehow they'll be rewarded. And we're not just rewarded so we get lots of neat medals. We're rewarded so that we are then deployed into some significant service. But somehow... In that mix with the ticker tape parade and uh, the reunion and, and the, the, the body that, that finally is satisfying us and the awareness, there's also this time of reward. That's what, the pres that's what it's like for us in the present heaven. Now, let me just push on. We, we, I said we were going to ask two questions. What are we like? What exactly is it like? And uh, let me just give them to you. 2 Corinthians 12. The Apostle Paul tells us about a, an experience that he had. And I'm not going to take the time to, uh, for us to go there. But he talks about how God snatched him up to what he called the third heaven. In the very first week, we talked about the third heaven. That's the dwelling place of God. The first heaven, that's the clouds. The second heaven, that's the sun, moon, and stars, where all this, that stuff, outer space. The third heaven is what they referred to. That's the place God is. That's where God dwells. Paul said, I was caught up to the third heaven. Whether I was in this body or in some other body, I don't know. But I was caught up there. And you know what's really fascinating about it? Paul never told us what it looked like at all. You know what he talked about? Do you remember that? You're familiar with the passage? He said, I heard unspeakable things. I'm sure it looked incredible. Because the next passage we're going to look at describes some pretty incredible scenery. 
But all that Paul talked about when God snatched him up there was the stuff he heard. Was it because he was a teacher by trade and a lawyer and he was like a wordsmith and that's what really impressed him? I don't know. But interestingly, he said, I heard some of the most incredible things. I couldn't even begin to tell you what it was like. I couldn't even begin to communicate the truths of heaven. And, you know, we read the, the, the epistles of Paul, the letters of Paul, and we're like, how did he get this stuff? Because Peter doesn't have that. Jeon doesn't have that. The writer of Hebrews doesn't have that. How did Paul get that stuff? I think it was because God took him actually to heaven and he heard the, the, the doctrines, if you will, the truths of heaven. He, he saw and heard the gospel as it really is. That's what he heard. That's what, that, that was what it was. And, and he was taken to that actual place. Is that in our universe, or is that in the universe next door, or on the universe, the other universe, or is that just some universe that's part of another, you know, dimension? I don't know. But he was actually there in God's dwelling place. Let me give you another one. It's an actual place where God dwells and is worshipped. Now, that first passage, we won't take the time to turn to it, but that's at the very end of the account about how Stephen was martyred. Stephen was one of the, uh, the, the six servants that was caught, tasked to help the church with the logistics, but he also was quite the evangelist. And in Acts 7, he preaches this incredible sermon where he lays out all of Israel's history and talks about how Jesus Christ was the culmination of it, and he died for our sins. And rather than accepting that message, they killed him. The people listening to him were so enraged at what he was teaching and talking about, they stoned him. And there is Stephen, basically, literally, about to die, and it says, he looked up into heaven, and he said, I saw God seated on his throne, and Jesus Christ next to him, and then he says, Jesus stood up and extended his hands to him. It's like God was revealing to Stephen this place that he was going to go to in just a few moments. And evidently that place is the throne room of God. Now, go with me over to Revelation chapter 4. And because I'm running out of time, I'm just going to have to give you some homework. Go home while you're still in the thinking of this sermon and read Revelation 4 and 5. Because I think this is a description of what Stephen was seeing. I think this is a description of what Paul was seeing. But Paul was just so overwhelmed with what he heard, he didn't even talk about how all this stuff. But look at verse 1 of chapter 4 of Revelation. Revelation 4.1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, it was like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, saying, Come up here, and I'm going to show you what's going to take place. Immediately I was there in the Spirit. Behold, 
a throne was standing in heaven and one seated on the throne and he was seated was on and he who was sitting on the throne was like jasper stone sardis in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance and around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders. It's an interesting discussion. Who are these 24 elders? Is it 12 people that are representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 people that are representing the 12 apostles of Christ? Probably. That's a good explanation. But there's other explanations. But there's, here's, here's, here's God in the middle, and there's 24 elders around him. And they're sitting clothed in white garments and gold crowns on their head. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and all around the throne... There was four living creatures full of eyes in the front and the back. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. The third creature had the face of that of a man. And the fourth creature, like, that, like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and is and who is to come. I mean, the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, they fell down. And look what they're saying, verse 11. They're saying, worthy art thou, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they exist and were created. I think this is describing for us some of what the present heaven looks like, what it's like. You know, someone could sarcastically look at that and say, well, that's to me like that's a church service. Right? I want to personally take offense at that, okay? I, I like church services. Those of us that, you know, have a hand in planning them and all that, we, we try to make it good, but I'll, I'll be with you. You know, I've been to some boring church services, but I can guarantee you if all the present heaven is is just a church service, you ain't going to be bored. I, I, I am pretty certain that God can engage you, but I don't think that's all that there is to it. There's enough things that indicate there's, there's other things, but... There might be other things, but there is definitely this thing. And it is an opportunity for us to worship God and to see the, through the ages the people worshiping. We're going to stop right there. But if you go down and read chapter 5, he talks about how there's a, there's a myriad of crowd, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping, saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and praise. That's this present heaven. It's where God dwells and is worshipped. Now let me just give you this last point. 
this is perhaps most personal to us at all. It's home. That, that place there is home. And I think part of the reason it, it, it's home is because of all the things God has made it to be, the reunion with loved ones, the opportunity to be in that face-to-face relationship with Jesus Christ, it's home. You don't have to turn in there, but let me just quote it to you. John 14, verses 1 to 6. Do you remember this? Jesus said, he, he, he's, he, just, he just dropped a bombshell on the disciples. He said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. You know, they're having the last supper. They don't know he's going to get killed in 12 hours. They don't know he's going to be executed on a cross tomorrow morning. But he says, I'm leaving. And these guys had a a gut kick like nobody's business. And then you know what he said? He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, like the King James says, are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come in and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Stop right there. When Paul's describing that in 2 Corinthians 5, He's saying they are at home in that place. Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you. My mother-in-law, surely those who have died in Christ, they are at home. Yeah, they're aware, they're conscious, they see the struggles but because they're seeing it from God's perspective, they can deal with it properly. But they're at home. They're at home because they are there with God. One of the greatest truths we have as believers is that our loved ones who die in Christ are now at home in that place, in the Father's house, probably better translated, are many sweets, and we all get that sweet that Jesus specifically prepared for us. That's what they get. That's what you're going to get if you trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. You know, I don't, uh, I talked about how at the beginning You know, I'm going to assume that everyone here has trusted Jesus Christ. Um, But that's, that's a dumb assumption. You know, the truth of the matter is there might be someone here that has not trusted Jesus Christ, that has never come to that place in their life when they have placed their faith and trust in him. They, they just, something intuitive inside of them is saying, I've got to be better. I've got to be good enough. I've got to climb that little ladder. I mean, God, you know, nobody gets anything for free, and you certainly don't get heaven for free. Well, the truth of the matter is, you're right, you don't get heaven for free. 
Jesus Christ died to pay your way into heaven. And, and if you have never come to the place in your life where you are, are just bankrupt spiritually, where you recognize all of your good deeds are like the dirtiest, filthy laundry there ever is. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness are like filthy rags, Isaiah said. We don't have any way of meriting a relationship with God, eternity with him. But Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross as your substitute, as my substitute. And I love how the Apostle Paul put it when uh, a jailer asked him, what do I need to do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Let me ask you, are you absolutely certain you're going to the present heaven? You might sit and say, not really. I, I've done some awful things. Yeah, we all have. We all have. But that's why Jesus Christ died for us. Have you trusted in what he did for you, ex received what he did for you on the cross of Calvary? That's how you get to the present heaven. After Jesus had said that about the many mansions, I'm going to come and get you, Thomas said, Father, or Jesus, we don't, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Have you trusted Christ? Is he the way that you're banking on? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to spend some time just really scratching the surface about what heaven's like. And I pray, Father, that uh, most of all, we would leave here assured that that's our destination, not because we deserve it, certainly not because we've earned it, that because Jesus Christ provided us with that living hope when he died on the cross for our sins. Father, if there is someone here that has not trusted Christ as Savior, I pray, Father, that you would keep them so stirred up and so stressed out and so uncomfortable that they would not find rest in anything until they find that rest in a trusting relationship with Jesus Christ who died for them. And so, Father, today I pray that uh, we who have trusted Christ, I pray, Father, we would get excited about heaven. And, Father, those that have not trusted Christ, Father, I pray that today you would lead them to that simple faith and trust and the only one who can save. His name is Jesus, and he's our Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.